nada más fue quebrado el tobillo. So I got to the hospital. I arrived to the emergency room and I remember the doctor telling me his name, but I forgot. He told me, I am the doctor in charge of your case. You're in a good hospital, the university hospital. We will need to cut off your foot. And I asked him, why? Is there no way to save it? And he said, well, do you have insurance? No se puede salvar. Y me dijo, no creo, me dijo. Tiene aseguranza, me dijo. Welcome to the Roots of Hope podcast, hosted by Raices, the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. My name is Marco Galaviz Luna, and in the next few episodes, we'll be exploring asylum and refugee law and learning about the people who are impacted. My name is Manoj Govindaya. And this is Manoj, and he's a human rights lawyer and the director of family detention services at RACES. I sat down with him to ask him what asylum is. So asylum is um, a type of immigration relief that is available for someone who has uh, a fear of returning to their home country. Um, so you cannot apply for asylum from outside of the U.S. Uh, under U.S. law, the only way you can actually apply for asylum is to physically get here and to request asylum. So a lot of people um, abroad who are afraid of being in their countries, you know, the only way they could get protection in the U.S. through asylum is to actually get here. Basically, there's, there's sort of four main things that you have to prove um, in order to win asylum. So the first is persecution. So you have to prove that you have been persecuted, uh, that you've experienced past persecution, or you have a well-founded fear of future persecution. And persecution is defined. So it could be threats, it could be physical violence, it could be violence against family members, it, it could be all sorts of things. Um, the second thing that you have to prove is that you are a member of one of the five protected grounds that are written into the asylum statute. So those grounds are race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. And the third thing you have to prove is that you were persecuted because of your membership in one of those five grounds. So you have to show that you were persecuted because of your race or because of your political opinion. Um, so that sort of third requirement is called the nexus. That's the on account of requirement. And that's usually the hardest thing for an asylum applicant to prove. And then the last thing that you have to prove is that um, the government in your country is unable or unwilling to protect you from the persecution. So the government, I think, for the majority of the clients we see is most likely the police, but could also be the judicial system, the court system, you know, your actual government, the military, it could be any, any aspect of the government that's unable or unwilling to protect you. So the person that's persecuting you, the persecutor, you have to show, you have to demonstrate 
in the United States to the person that is deciding whether you win asylum or not. You have to demonstrate to them what the persecutor's motive was or what the persecutor's intention was. So it's really hard, you know, a typical persecutor doesn't necessarily say like, I am beating you because you are gay or like, I don't like people of this tribe or this race or whatever. Um, so it's really hard to be able to show a judge or an asylum officer that like this person who threatened me or this person who violated me did it because of XYZ reason. Here, Rosa is frying potatoes battered with eggs stuffed with cheese. She tells me she's never made this dish for her son before, who recently reunited with her. Rosa fled El Salvador 10 years ago, leaving behind three kids. And so I started working as a machine operator. I had to do a test and it was easy, so I passed it. And that's how I started working there at the Maquila. I, was, I became the best worker. We were paid by the amount of items that we made. So I would get bonuses and make extra money. In five hours, I would do 10 hours worth of work. I would sew on the color for dress shirts. I learned how to do everything from the most simple stitch to the most complicated ones. It was soon after that that I began to be extorted. The first time it happened, I felt like I was being mugged. That's how it felt because I had never experienced something like that. After that happened, I spoke with another co-worker and she said it was happening to her too. That was when about 10 of us got together to protect ourselves. We would always leave work together because they would focus on women who were alone, but specifically single mothers. There were very few women that worked there who had husbands. The majority of us were single mothers. That maquila went bankrupt because the workers stopped showing up for work. And so when they closed down, I had to move to another plant, a jeans factory. The gangs also followed me to that factory. It was around that time that my son Carlos was diagnosed with his disease. It was very sad for me because with my salary, I had to sustain the gang, sustain my family, and pay for my child's medical bills. It was very sad because it wasn't something I could accept. I kept thinking, how am I going to pay for everything? It was around that time that another coworker couldn't handle it anymore, and she refused to pay the extortion. And so the gang shot and killed her right in front of me. But how did things get so bad in her country? 
I mean, in 1980, El Salvador entered a period of a 12-year civil war. Carlos Humberto Romero was president at the time, and his presidential campaign and reign was marred by popular uprisings and corruption. When he was elected, less than 1% of the population owned 70% of the farmland, and 95% of coffee profits, El Salvador's biggest moneymaker, was controlled by 2% of coffee growers. The military led a coup against Romero with fears that uprisings would soon gain more support. The military coup was quickly recognized by the Carter administration, which presumed instability would give rise to a communist government in El Salvador. The military occupation was violent and repressive and led to the rise of the opposition from the left. Different factions from the left coalesced and formed the Farabundo Martí National Liberation Front, known as the FMLN an armed resistance group. The war was long and bloody, and atrocities were committed by both the military and the FMLN. The U.S. gave billions of dollars to the military during the 12 years the war lasted. In 1992, peace was achieved but the war had displaced almost half of El Salvador's population, almost two million people. Many fled seeking refuge from the violence. It was under the Clinton administration that the U.S. government began deporting Salvadorians, many of which became involved with crime in the U.S. Once home, and because of an abundance of weapons and a civil government unable and unwilling to enact social reforms, those who came back and with ties to the U.S., began to organize themselves into maras, gangs, and seize control of territory. At its worst, there are 12 murders a day in El Salvador for every 100,000 people. It were these forces that made Rosa flee El Salvador. Porque muchas veces pues sucede y nadie sabe. A lot of the times when these things happen, no one finds out because they kill all the witnesses. And they were going to kill me for having seen, but the gangster told me that he was going to make an exception with me, and that he was going to forgive my life, but I could not say anything. He said that if I went to the police, they would find out and they would kill me and my three children. They knew their names, how old they were, and afterwards I received an anonymous letter saying what they were going to do to my daughter if I talked. So that's when I took the decision to take my kids to my mother's house. Since Carlos had cancer, I also had to stop working. I would only travel to take him to the hospital. After his sessions were over, I was able to return to work, but the gangs continued to extort me. One day, one of those gang members followed me home and told me, they sent me to kill you now, but I am not going to. You have to leave town and leave the country because if they see that I forgave your life, they will kill me and kill you and your family. That's when I left. Rosa had no choice but to leave.
In the next episode, we find out about Rosa's journey to the U.S. and the complex web of applying for asylum. This episode was produced by me, Marco Galaviz Luna, and Ana Karen Ortiz Varela. Thank you so much for tuning in.